This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 79, September 12, 1984. Well, a few minutes ago, we were all at uh, the Old Murphy's Hotel having our weekly staff breakfast and uh, telling stories, serious and otherwise, and one of which I'm going to tell you in a moment. First of all, I'd like to say that the Old Murphy's Hotel is the oldest hotel in the United States in continuous use. There are older hotels. This, after all, goes back to the gold rush days. But uh, none have been in continuous use as long as the Old Murphy's Hotel. Among the people who have stayed there over the years have been Mark Twain, Horatio Alger, Thomas H. Lipton, Henry Ward Beecher, a number of the Rothschilds, General U.S. Grant, Black Bart, and others as well. And more recently, some of our visitors, like Lou Lehrman and John Lofton and others. Well, I was telling a story that, to me, epitomizes the United States as I knew it as a young man, a country before the war. In the early 30s, late 20s, early 30s, this Mexican politician fled Mexico into exile in Los Angeles. His wife and daughter were already there. His wife, whom I knew, was Polish-French and a professor. The politician from Mexico, full Mexican, had never been in the United States before. He took a train, came to Los Angeles, landed or disembarked at the downtown train depot, and as they left, he stopped and demanded of his wife, What's that? Pointing to a stack of newspapers with nothing but a cigar box full of change next to the stack. His wife explained to him that that was one of the dailies that people would uh, pick it up and put the money in the cigar box. He refused to believe it. He said that they must steal the papers or steal the money or do something. This is impossible. And she said, no, no, it's routine here in the United States. The man insisted on standing by for an hour. Mind you, here's a refugee who had not seen his family for over a year since the time he sent them into exile, fearful that there might be serious trouble. But he stood there watching. He did not see a single person take a paper without paying for it, and no one stealing any money from the cigar box. At the end of the hour, he was not only convinced, but he broke down and wept. And he s said he understood why the United States was different from Mexico. The sad fact is that while we still have many virtues, 
What he saw then you would not see today. The difference is the radical decline in faith and morals. Speaking of faith and morals, I want to call your attention to something in Christianity Today for September 7, 1984. This is not one of my favorite periodicals, and this article tells you why. It is a long article by someone named Tim Stafford entitled Ralph Winter, an Unlikely Revolutionary. This bookish, mild manner professor has set the agenda for world evangelization in this generation. Now, this very, very flattering article has this paragraph in it, which I'm going to read. The uh, school where Winter teaches is the... Um, School of Missions, the Fuller School of Missions. The acquisition of the campus of Pasadena Christian College is a story of cliffhanging prayer meetings, of large checks arriving at the last moment, of spiritual battles with a Hindu sect that also wanted the campus, and for a time shared it with the U.S. Center. So far, nearly six million has been paid on the campus. With eight and a half million coming due in a year, the center has very little money in the bank, no mass mailings or TV spots in the works, and no rich uncles that they know of waiting to write stupendous checks, inevitably uh, conversations on the campus fairly often turn toward the subject of money. The consensus for some time has been that if God wants the center to continue, he will have to do a miracle, end of quote. Now, this is the kind of thing that I feel is so disgusting and repulsive in so much churchianity today. People going ahead in massive debt and calling it faith, the leap of faith. And then at the last, making all kinds of frenzied appeals, the Lord wants you to help us with no attention to the fact that what they're doing is immoral, that the New Testament tells us clearly, own no man anything save to love one another, that this is to be our general premise of operation that if we must go into debt, the Old Testament says it is for a six-year limit, and that we are not to mortgage our future indefinitely. As Howard Amundsen has said very tellingly in a Chalcedon report, and I quote, God promises to meet our needs, not to pay our debts, unquote. I think this is ungodly and uh, needs to be seen as such. Well, now on to a different subject. One of the very interesting books that I read recently by Peter Brown, 
always a very interesting man to read, professor of history and classics at the University of California at Berkeley. And the title of this is Society and the Holy in Late Antiquity, published by the University of California Press in 1982. Now, the idea of the holy in Christianity in particular is the point of interest here. The holy man began to occupy very early in the history of the church a, a significant role. In particular, Syria was the great province for holy men. These men were very commonly ascetics in that Greco-Roman Neoplatonic asceticism moved into Christianity and had a powerful influence. These men thus uh, in part carried on the old tradition. To a degree they also rivaled the old tradition. And as Brown says, the hermit deliberately placed himself on the mountaintops as a usurper of the power of the Baleen. So in a sense he represented a continuity at some points with paganism, at other points a real rivalry. Now, the holy man became, as Brown said, a living icon. The theologians had made uh, the point, of course, in terms of scripture, that man was made in the beginning in the image of God, a clear, unbroken image. The holy man thus restored that image to a very great degree. And thus they were living icons. They were seen as men who were close to God and could be intercessors with God. And as Brown says, and I quote, whether living or dead, he was a favored courtier in the distant empire of heaven. He had gained a boldness to speak up successfully for his protégés before the throne of Christ, unquote. As a result, holy men were very much prized by the cities in many instances because they were seen as a protector. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, as Christianity moved westward, things began to change. And we have to look at the medieval church as both a combination of what Peter Brown describes as marking the Mediterranean world of Christianity and especially Eastern Orthodoxy and what came to focus in Ireland in St. Patrick. Now St. Patrick is too little appreciated he is perhaps as familiar by name as almost any saint in uh, church history. 
but not known. In his own time, St. Patrick was described as a man of one book, the Bible. There were many, many other church leaders in his day who were great scholars, very well read, uh, brilliant theologians and the like. But Patrick has endured. Now, as Peter Brown describes Patrick, and I quote, as the Celtic legend of St. Patrick says, faced by his first convert, he baptized him and handed him the ABCs. When tribesmen murdered a missionary on the North Sea coast and looted his encampments, rushing together around this treasure trove with whoops of joy, they smashed the chest only to find books, not gold, parchment leaves covered with divine knowledge, not silver. It was in the pages of the Gospels that a northern Christian hoped to find his God. Well, he says northern there by contrast, of course, to the Middle East and North Africa. This brings up a very important point that is too seldom appreciated. Catholics and Protestants very seldom pay any attention to Eastern churches. That is, not to the same degree that they look at each other and rival each other and criticize each other, but they are members of the same family. Both the Catholic Church over the centuries has changed dramatically again and again, and Protestantism has changed again and again, and both have done it for better and for worse. They've done it because what came to focus in St. Patrick marks Western Christendom. It is the Christianity that centers itself on the book, on the Bible. And as a result, it created a different and more practical concept of holiness. At Mount Athos, Greek Orthodox monks in the Middle Ages contemplated their navel in a kind of mysticism that was closer to India than it was to Christ. That sort of thing could not develop in the West. While it's possible to find here and there a few freakish extremes of asceticism and contemplation, medieval Christianity was intensely practical. We can thus describe Western Christianity, both Catholic and Protestant, as essentially Protestant, and at the same time Catholic. Protestant because it has always had the dynamics to protest against what it did not feel was in conformity with the faith, with a given deposit. Catholic in that it always had a sense of universality, 
the tremendous missionary impulse in Christendom has come primarily from Catholics and Protestants. The one exception to that, perhaps, of any note, was the uh, early and medieval Church of Armenia, which created uh, churches clear across Asia into China. And these were destroyed when uh, the Mongol Empire fell, completely wiped out. And as far west as Iceland, where in the early days the three bishops were all Armenian. But apart from that uh, exception, the great outreach of Christianity into Asia, Africa, the Americas, has been Catholic and Protestant. Very important point. Well, now on to still another subject. One of the more interesting books of late, a rather grim book to read, is Henry Troyat's Ivan the Terrible. Troyat, T-R-O-Y-A-T, published in 1984 by E.P. Dutton, translated from the French. Nothing Troyat has ever written has been dull, and this is no exception, although one has to say that uh, Ivan the Terrible certainly was not dull in his life, and it would take a very, very uh, strange man to write a dull book about Ivan the Terrible. The interesting fact is that uh, Ivan the Terrible in his day, in the early years of his reign, was regarded as a kind of saint. When uh, he was very ill at 23, people were fearful that he was too perfect for a sinful Russia. Ivan identified himself with God. He tended to believe in his own infallibility. He was given to intense and mystical devotion to the faith, fanatical worship. And yet, with all of that, because he identified himself with God, he could justify anything that he did. As a result, he became increasingly a monster. He was a classic case of someone whose childhood can be used to say he was warped from the beginning. Certainly, he had a fearful childhood. But he used it deliberately as an excuse right up to the end. He gained as much religious ecstasy out of killing and of torturing people as he did in worship. He became an intense 
monster and a plague to the entire country. He took pleasure in torturing. He was a man who delighted in planning evil, in punishing people who had no reason to expect it. That gave him a particular delight. The interesting thing, of course, is that uh, no one dared strike out at him. And the problem was that the people had a false religious respect for the monarch. Everything in this world belonged to the monarch. He could not be touched. There was a devotion to the Tsars, whether they were kind or cruel. Everything came from him. This was literally worked out in the court. Even in the ceremonials, at the dinner table, for example, we read when the guests sat down, everything contributed to the impression of omnipotence. I quote, when the guests had taken their places around the Tsar, they would remain frozen in mystical respect, awaiting his first gesture. He would begin by distributing the bread and salt. The boyars then divided these among the guests, and when each had received his portion, he rose and bowed. Next, the Tsar had a great cup of wine brought to every foreigner on his behalf, and again everyone rose to his feet. When the meat arrived, the drill was the same. After having served himself, the Tsar offered pieces dripping with sauce to a few high personages. The officers would say to each one, The Tsar sends you this, and each would again stand up to thank him. When the Tsar drank to someone's health, which often happened, he first made the sign of the cross three times over the cup held out to him by the cupbearer. A nobleman seated next to Ivan would inform the guest of the honor that fell to him, and the whole company would leap to their feet and bow their heads. There was no end to the thanks offered to the master for the wine and food. Everything came from him. His table companions were obligated to him for life. Because of the tirelessly repeated rituals, meals sometimes, lasted five hours, unquote. Now, bear that in mind in terms of what I just had said previously about the nature of Western Christianity, uh, Protestant and Catholic. Then consider the fact that uh, In the Middle Ages, as uh, we read, for example, in a study of the High Middle Ages, and this is uh, a book now out of print, but uh, written by Bryce D. Lyon, L-Y-O-N, and I quote, 
The men concerned with political theory accepted without question the supremacy of God's law over royal authority. A king who flouted the law ceased to be a lawful ruler and became a tyrant deserving excommunication by the church and removal from office by his subjects, unquote. Now, that was the attitude in the Middle Ages. That was why there was a conflict between church and state. And by God's law, they meant the Bible. The earlier medieval pre-Aristotelian definition of natural law, by the way, was the law of God as given in the Old Testament and the Gospels. Now, with that perspective, you see, you are in line with what I cited about St. Patrick. Now let us turn to Calvin as his views are summarized by David Little in Religion, Order, and Law. And he tells us that uh, man in his fall had taken no account of the word of God and as a result he became fearfully deformed. Quoting Calvin, for if he had not spared us, our fall would have entailed the destruction of our whole nature, unquote. Man's disobedience should, by all rights, lead to total disorder, but he cannot completely avoid the commandment of God. Moreover, Little goes on to say, for Calvin, the creation of order and the redemption of order inhere in the living word of God, namely in Jesus Christ. He is the incarnated command of God as well as the head of the true social structure. The purpose of redemption is the same as that of creation, the bringing into proper order of all things. Moreover, Listen to this comment of Calvin in interpreting John 12:31. And I quote, Judgment is interpreted variously as reformation and condemnation. I would agree rather with the former view, with those who say that the wor world shall be restored to right order for the Hebrew word mishpat which is rendered judgment, means a state of good order. Now we know that apart from Christ there is nothing but confusion in this world. Although Christ has already begun to set up the kingdom of God, his death was the real beginning of a right order and the full restoration of the world. Now, Again, to quote from Calvin, this time his commentary on Matthew 25, 20. Those who employ usefully 
whatever God has committed to them are said to be engaged in trading. The life of the godly is justly compared to trading. He has reference to the parable. For they ought naturally to exchange and barter with each other in order to maintain intercourse. And the industry with which every man discharges the office assigned to him, the calling itself, the power of acting properly, and other gifts are reckoned to be so many kinds of merchandise, because the use or object which they have in view is to promote mutual intercourse among men. Now the gain which Christ mentions in the parable is general usefulness, which illustrates the glory of God. For though God is not enriched and makes no gain by our labors, yet when every one is highly profitable to his brethren and applies advantageously for their salvation the gifts which he has received from God, he is said to yield profit or gain to God himself. Let me say parenthetically, do you see here the Western concept of holiness connected with justice, with trade, with establishing good order? To continue with Calvin, so highly does our Heavenly Father value the salvation of man that whatever contributes to it he chooses to place to his own account, that we may not become weary in well-doing Christ declares that the labor of those who are faithfully employed in their calling will not be useless, unquote. This tells us very clearly that there is such a thing as Western culture, and it is important for us to be appreciative of that fact. Now, on to something else a book published not too long ago, but I believe now out of print, published in 1980, Landon Y. Jones, Great Expectations, America and the Baby Boom Generation. Landon Y. Jones was, at the time of publication, a senior editor at People magazine and a former education editor for Time, and he has written for such publications as Atlantic, Esquire, and Saturday Review. This book, of course, was a, an alternate selection of the Book of the Month Club, as well as a history book club alternate. So his credentials are not exactly the best. Prestigious, perhaps, but not the best. Well, this book is full of all kinds of interesting data. And uh, some of it I, 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 I did find quite interesting. For example, about mid-century in the last century, the population growth in this country began to decline. And the uh, birth rate continued to decline, and it reached its low point in the 20s, not in the 30s, as is commonly assumed. So that uh, 
it wasn't the depression that led to the low birth rate. It had been there for a long, long time and had bottomed out in the previous decade. However, typical of his point of view is this. He gives us all decade, all kinds of data on how with the baby boom after World War II, we had a phenomenal increase in crime when those babies became young people. And so he says that uh, as the uh, baby boom is beginning to decline, the crime rate is declining. And he concludes, the best crime fighter in the world is the calendar. Now, that's nonsense. He says also that the stability of society depends on a low birth rate. Because when you have a higher percentage of adults, you have a lower crime rate. This is the kind of garbage that people with a statistical perspective uh, can dish out. There is no consideration of the religious factor, no consideration of the fact that the crime rate was low when the baby boom was underway most phenomenally in the colonial period. We had a fantastic birth rate then and into the early years of the Republic. He makes no attempt to explain those facts. When you take a purely secular point of view, you have no understanding of events, and this is Landon Jones' problem. He doesn't understand events because he's going to look at them statistically and say that the calendar is what takes care of things. Well, the book as a result is full of interesting material and uh, worthless. Now to another book, P.H. Sawyer, S-A-W-Y-E-R, Kings and Vikings. Not the best written book, published in uh, Methuen, London, and New York in 1982, but still a worthwhile book. The book begins with a quote and then makes no mention of it, but the book in essence deals with uh, the subject matter of this quotation, which is from St. Augustine. A very famous quote about the nature of kingdoms. In the city of God, what uh, Augustine says, and I quote, is, Set justice aside then, and what are kingdoms but fair thievish purchases? For what are thieves' purchases but little kingdoms? For in thefts the hands of the underlings are directed by the commander, the confederacy of them is sworn together, and the pillage is shared by the law amongst them. 
And if these ragamuffins grow up to be able enough to keep forts, build habitations, possess cities, and conquer and uh, adjoining nations, then their government is no more called thievish, but grace to the eminent name of a kingdom, given and gotten, not because they have left their practices, but because now they may use them without danger of law. Elegant and excellent was that pirate's answer to the great Macedonian Alexander, who had taken him. The king asking him how he durst molest the seas, he replied with a free spirit, How darest thou molest the whole world? But because I do it with a little ship only, I am called a thief. Thou doing it with a great navy art called an emperor. Unquote. Well, Sawyer's point is that uh, this is how Europe started, in particular the Viking kingdoms. Vikings who went out and... Uh, raided Europe, France, England, Ireland, Sicily, and so on, were pirates, really. Very commonly, they were outlaws who had left Scandinavia. So they went out, they established their realms over the generations, and became kingdoms. Augustine's point, which Sawyer does not pick up, is that uh, all kingdoms without justice are no more than bands of pirates and robbers, mafias. And that's what every government that abandons, every civil government that abandons Christian faith becomes. He deals, of course, with their Christianization in time. Well, one interesting point in his account is that uh, these Scandinavian realms during the time of Rome did have trade with Rome. Moreover, even these barbarian rulers recognized the value of trade. Therefore, to have a trading city was a great asset. Any ruler able to control such trading cities could hope for increased wealth and prestige. And some occasionally removed uh, merchants from cities too far away for them to hold on to, to their own country and encourage them to set up their centers there because it would be so advantageous to the realm. They appreciated the value of commerce. And, of course, on the missionary frontier in northern and then eastern Europe, the monks, abbots, and bishops, as they moved in and started in an area, worked together with the Jewish traders. A very interesting study has been made of that. And the combination worked out beautifully <laughs> because the pagan tribes recognized how important the traders were, the Jewish merchants. 
and they would sell them uh, some of their people and furs and whatnot and receive goods in exchange. And it made an excellent point of conversion. The mission working at that point to protect the traders and the traders by their presence creating a center of protection because these savage tribes wanted them there. It worked out very, very favorably. Now, with regard to that matter of these pagan states, beginning with bands of pirates, it is important to remind ourselves of what, oh, some few years ago, well, not too long ago, 1981, in Transaction Books, Legitimacy in the Modern State, John H. Shar. S-C-H-A-A-R had to say, and this book may still be in print. He said, legitimacy then is almost entirely a matter of sentiment. Followers believe in a regime or have faith in it, and that is what legitimacy is, unquote. In other words, when people lose faith in a civil government in a state, then it begins to crumble. And it's the beginning of the end. Well, what he should have said is that real legitimacy is a religious issue. And when the religious foundations of justice are denied or destroyed, the state disintegrates. Now on to a different subject. I'm going to read from, uh, well, it's a market report put out by Drexel, Burnham, and Lambert. But it is written by one of you, Richard Burgers. It's an excellent analysis of the economic situation. What uh, uh, Richard Burgers has to say, and he begins by quoting J. Peter Grace, we are going to have a credit crisis. Nobody knows exactly when. Any more than you know how long you can go on staying out every night until one and you are drinking five martinis a day and smoking three packs. You may feel fine, but in the long run, it ain't going to work. Just wait, baby. J. Peter Grace. In January of this year, Mr. Grace presented to President Reagan a comprehensive private sector survey of governmental cost control. This remarkable survey, the product of $75 million of donated services and two years' effort of some of the most respected business leaders in this nation, offers recommendations which would save $424 billion in three years, rising to $19 trillion per year by the year 2000. This study, utilizing conservative estimates, projected that unless fundamental changes are made in the federal spending, an annual deficit of $2 trillion is expected for the year 2000, little more than 15 years from now. 1984's deficit, $160 billion. 
By that date, without spending relief, the federal debt, now $1.5 trillion, would rise to $13 trillion, 160000 per current taxpayer. And the interest of that debt would be $1.5 trillion per year, $18,500 per current taxpayer per year. Despite the almost unbelievable compounding power of current federal deficits, Mr. Grace concedes there is only a fighting chance that his Cost Control Commission study will not be consigned to the same junk heap littered with the reports of every other president's commission. While the taxpayers stand to benefit most by getting costs under control, Mr. Grace states 90% of the American people don't know what's going on. The problem is to get to the people. They are the only ones who can make it happen. If they don't care, this will go on forever. Mr. Grace had hoped that his cost control appeal would receive the broad media focus that it logically deserved. But he is now not particularly hopeful. Maybe it will never be done. Consider the simple fact that this critical cost control study was released over six months ago. And apart from an initial ripple has received remarkably little attention by our citizens, public or private. Recall that the study pointed out that a dollar of federal spending saved today translates into a difference in cumulative spending of 32 times that amount through 1995 and 71 times that amount through the end of the century. Mr. Grace is not suggesting that the country will go bankrupt, though he has stated that any private country company so badly mismanaged would have gone bankrupt long ago. The Fed can always print money, but Mr. Grace fears the country soon could easily slide into massive inflation. He warns America could reach bingo any day as the dollar weakens and overseas money flows out instead of in. All this is a horrendous prospect for the future, particularly for the younger generation. If the American people understood the gravity of the outlook, they undoubtedly would not support representatives who might let it happen. Note that we have underlined understood. Alas, this finest of all governmental cost studies has seemingly already begun to gather dust, an unwarranted and tragically failed late-hour opportunity nearly lost pointing out the fact that it is not only Mr. Grace's commission that is alarmed. We quote from the September 2, 1984, Los Angeles Times front-page article on the growth of federal debt. Quote, the situation just feeds on itself. It's like someone with a big Visa credit card bill. If they don't pay it off, the bill gets bigger and bigger, unquote. The same article quotes a West Coast banker who specializes in lending to third-world nations. Quote, if I were rating the U.S. as I do other countries, I would put it in the highest of high-risk categories, unquote. After reading this commentary, we ask you, can we logically expect the current broadly depressed commodity market to remain lo uh, down long? And can we not logically anticipate a materially stronger commodity market than any we have ever experienced the past few years, unquote. Now, I'm going to comment briefly 
on uh, a question some of you wrote and asked that I consider. What do I think of the forthcoming election? Well, I won't quote literally, but I'll pass on to you the substance of a remark made to me by the vice president and treasurer of a major corporation, the name of which you would all recognize. He was very upset because he could see the economic disaster looming ahead of us as a country. And knowing personally both candidates for the presidency, he was not impressed by Mr. Reagan and a bit frightened by Mr. Mondale's inadequacies. Now, I think his assessment was right. However, I think the two conventions had a hopeful aspect. John Lofton, when he was with us not too long ago after the Democratic Convention, commented on the fact that the Democratic delegates were far more conservative on such issues as abortion and the Soviet Union than the party leadership. And their voice was not heard. It was silenced. I believe that there will be a growing democratic conservatism. Again, at uh, Dallas, the Republican delegates were far more conservative than the party leadership and they were heard. They commanded the platform committees. They dominated the convention. Their one concern was, would uh, the president in his acceptance speech backwater from what they had done? But this is not all. There is a strong coalition in Congress of Republican and Democrats, conservatives, 160, many of them dedicated Christians who are doing something in preparation for the future. Then you have the very strong political action groups, Howard Phillips in the Conservative Caucus, Bill Richardson, and his Gun Owners of America, Paul Warrick, Committee for a Free Congress, and so on. All working towards 1986, hoping then to gain command of the House of Representatives, and then to work to turn this country around before the disaster hits. I think what they're planning to do is tremendous. I think they need our support, and I commend these groups to you. But things are beginning to take place. It's not often when a party represents greater strength than the leadership. What it tells us is happening is that things are beginning to change. They're beginning to change from the grassroots up, and that's the hopeful aspect. So now it's a race against time. Lou Lehrman, when he was with us, 
uh, not too long ago indicated that 1988 or 1989 might be the critical point for the economy. Well, if that is the case, although he does expect the crisis to begin much earlier, it means that if we can turn things around in 1984 and 1986 by electing the right men to the House and to the Senate and to the state houses, we can begin to effect a change. We will have a crisis, but we can begin rebuilding even as the crisis builds up. So, I believe this is a very important election for that reason. Then it's a very important election for another reason. This is the third campaign in which religion has been an issue, and more so in this one than in the previous two. The politicians at the very top wish it would go away, but it is not going to go away. The country is changing, and they had better realize the religious issue is here to stay, that Christians are waking up to the fact that justice, that law, that civil government represent theological concerns, and they're going to do something about it. Well, the uh, politicians have had to, the top leadership, the major candidates, talk about religion because their speechwriters have told them it has to be in there. They wish the issue would go away. It's a dangerous one, but it won't. I was amused, one woman columnist in yesterday's paper was very, very upset over the comments of Archbishop O'Connor in New York about Cuomo and Ferraro and protested against this mingling of church and state. Well, what our Constitution speaks against is establishment, not against the expression of a faith in politics. In fact, it sought to disentangle them legally so they could be working together in faith and ideas, which means a much more vital relationship. We had that relationship earlier. The humanists worked to destroy it. Now we have the establishment of humanism as the religion of the United States. And they scream when we try to disestablishment, uh, to disestablish humanism and to reestablish Christianity as the faith that informs our ideas of justice law and civil government. We're going to win the battle. And we're going to hear a lot more squealing from these people. We're going to hear 
more and more criticisms of Falwell and Archbishop O'Connor and others. But it isn't going to stop them. That voice is only going to increase. It's going to increase because of what I said at the very beginning, you recall, of our talk today. What St. Patrick represented. He converted them and handed them the ABCs because they were going to read the book, they were going to be governed by the book, they were going to be the people of the book. And what St. Patrick represented is the spirit of the West. That's why I believe that you can call St. Patrick a good Catholic, a good Presbyterian, a good Baptist, a good whatever your church is because he represented the epitome of what has made the West an area of ferment. The West has not been a peaceful part of the world. It has been the least peaceful area of the world because there has been a continual protest, a continual reforming, a continual insistence that this is the way, walk in it. Holiness has been demanded in the West, not only of the holy man out there in the desert or in the monk's cell, but of the judge on the bench, the man in civil government, the man who sells you goods, Everybody. Now that's been the Western standard. And we had better recognize what it has been, that we have had an idea of the holy that is remarkable. It is changing the Catholic Church all the time, and we're going to see greater changes. It's changing the Protestant churches. And we're going to see still greater changes as errors are corrected and as things are brought into line with that concept of holiness. Well, I have enjoyed this session with you and uh, look forward to our next one. And one of these days soon we'll be back with... Uh, Otto Scott and John Saunders. John is very, very busy at the present, and we don't see him too often, but we'll corral him one of these days and uh, bring him here. Thank you for listening.